This is the Lost Mountain Baptist Church podcast. We exist to help all kinds of people find and follow Jesus. For more information about service times, giving, and upcoming events, check out our website, lmbc.us. We hope you enjoy this week's message. Well, good morning. It's so good to see you guys. Happy Easter. It is, <laughs> you guys are a quiet group. Uh, it's Easter 2022. I said 2020 last service. Terrible year. Nobody wants to go back to Easter time 2020. But it is Easter 2022. Easter typically a Sunday where we're more excited than not. So we'll see what we can do with this. Um, I have lived most of my life, not all, but most of my life in the Bible Belt. And Easter is a bit, the, the way that we observe Easter and what we see uh, around Easter in our culture is a bit interesting um, just across the United States anyway. It is especially interesting in evangelical cultures in, in the Bible Belt, right? And it would cause you to simply ask, what is, what is this all about? It, so much of it seems more ritual or tradition than it does um, deep-seated uh, faith and, and reverent celebration of Christ and what God has accomplished in him. Um, what does the victory of Christ on the cross, the victory of Christ on the cross, confirmed by God in his resurrection, mean for your life this morning? Uh, some of you know that we have older kids who are, are teenagers, and then we have uh, younger kids, twins, Zeke and Zane, who are three and a half uh, years old, and I uh, picked them up from preschool this week on Thursday, uh, and they were out for Easter weekend, and they had little Easter baskets and stuff in them. They were all excited. Uh, we got home, and I thought I would uh, see where their knowledge base is on Easter. So I said, Zane, Zane, um, do you know what Easter is all about? And he said, yes. And I said, what is Easter all about? And he said, the bunny. I said, no, no, it's not the bunny. It's a good guess. That's not the bunny, though. Let's think one more time, son, who we pray for and love and talk to Jesus about and read the Jesus storybook Bible to. And uh, let's see, uh, one more time. Let's try again. Think real hard. What's, what's Easter all about? He looked off for a minute. He said, eggs. I said, no, no, it's, it's not about eggs. Two strikes, son. You're almost out. So... Let's give it one more time. I want you to think really hard. What is Easter all about? And he looked, he said, oh, candy. So I don't know what to do with that as a guy who loves the Lord and a dad whose kid says that. He must have been being taught by his older siblings more than his mother and I. But it's funny because his little reflection, his comments sort of uh, reflect the, the cultural malaise around Easter, the dress up that we do and, um, you know, getting to, to Nana's house for the big family meal and all of this stuff. But why ultimately are we here? What will be different tomorrow because we were here today? What will be different in your life tomorrow on Monday because you celebrated the resurrection of a Palestinian Jew who was executed by the Romans just outside of Jerusalem, near two millennia ago. Well, this is, 
this is where Paul leads us. We've been in a study of Colossians and we're staying in it for Easter morning in a passage that I think is especially uh, poignant and significant to us on this Resurrection Sunday. Let's look at Colossians chapter 1. We'll read verses 21 through 23, but I want to set up why Paul is saying what he's saying here. Uh, Paul has been talking about the sort of cosmic victory and cosmic implications of Jesus' death on the cross. That through the crucifixion of Christ, his willingness to go to the cross, to give his life for sinful humanity, God really is reconciling all things to himself. That on the cross, Christ defeated the powers of darkness and evil. All the spirits and principalities uh, that are at war with God, were at war with God then, are warring with God today, have actually ultimately been defeated. And their, feet, their defeat is just working itself out now. And they, like we today, didn't have real good language to talk about this sort of cosmic reality. But now Paul brings it down and he says, you Colossians who are living in a city in a time where people around you are saying, it's okay to believe the Jesus stuff, to be Christian, just, just have an open mind. Bring some of this in and bring some of this in and stop saying that that's wrong and stop saying that that shouldn't be. We're an advanced pluralistic society in first century Colossae. And there was confusion. And Paul doesn't want them confused. And God doesn't want you confused this morning about whether or not you stand in Christ or outside of Christ still. In either place you stand, he wants you to understand what it means to be there. Let's pick up Paul's words in verse 21. Once you were alienated from God. And were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith established and firm and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard. And that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Let's pray. God, through your Holy Spirit, awaken us this morning. God, I pray that the blind would see, that the dead by your power would be given new life. God, that hearts of stone would be replaced with hearts of flesh. God, that those who are in darkness would be brought into light. And God, that your people would have a greater understanding that leads them to worship and praise your name for who they are in you and what you've done for them and in them. I ask this in Jesus' sufficient name. Amen. In a sermon on this passage, um, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones in 19. 55 in Westminster Chapel in London, uh, simply read the text and then said this, slaves of darkness, slaves of the devil, that is what we were. But we have seen that Christ has delivered us out of that and put us into his new kingdom of light, righteousness, and glory. And the moment we believe that, we thank God because God alone could deliver us.
I think that's a great uh, summary of what Paul is saying here and of indeed what it means to be a Christian, to be someone who has heard the gospel and by the grace of God and mercy of God has believed it in a way that caused us to, to bow down before God and cry out as a sinner for his mercy in Christ. Paul says, look at verse 21, once you were alienated from God. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds and in your evil behavior. We know the sting of alienation, right? Uh, of being at enmity with someone, of having broken fellowship and broken relationship. You don't have to go long in life. Like maybe you make it until middle school without experiencing that, but you typically don't make it out of middle school without experiencing some kind of alienation and rejection. Anybody remember middle school? Ugh, right? I mean, how many of you would jump up and say, yes, I would love to go back and just do those middle school years again. They were the best. Not me. Not me. I would rather have my toes and fingers cut off than go back and go through middle school again. What an awkward time for people. But it's about that time that you begin to realize you like this person and this person likes that person and that person likes you and so on and so forth. And you start having to navigate all of this uh, emotional kind of, of connection with people. And eventually you feel the sting of rejection, of alienation. And right here, Paul is saying outside of Christ, you are alienated. He's saying those of you who are in Christ were once not in Christ, alienated from God, enemies, enemies in your minds and behavior of God. We don't like this talk today. We like fluffy pudding kind of talk. That whatever you believe, it's fine as long as you're sincere. Who are you to push on me and say my belief is wrong or my lifestyle? This is the trajectory that our culture and our nation is going in. And I don't think it's going to stop. The chasm between the church and the culture is just going to get wider and wider and wider until we can no longer pretend that the two are the same. And there will be a distinct difference between followers of Jesus Christ and everyone else in our nation, in our beliefs, in the way that we live, the way that we love. Paul's saying, once you were alienated from God. And when we look at this line about being enemies in our minds and because of our evil behavior, there's more of a kind of a nuanced connection and dance there uh, than you would realize. N.T. Wright does this well. He says, thought and act are both tainted outside of Christ, each pushing the other into further corruption. Wrong thinking leads to vice, vice to further mental corruption, so that the mind still not totally ignorant of God's standards, finds itself applauding evil. This is life outside of Christ. And Paul is telling Colossians, this is who many of you were before Christ came to you and saved you. And this is the direction that our culture is going. Carl Truman is a, a Christian professor and uh, sort of an expert at the place where culture and the gospel meets. Does a lot of speaking and writing. He's written a phenomenal book called uh, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. I think it's one of the most consequential books to be written in the last 10 years, if not the last 20 years. Um, in there, Carl, just uh, to help us understand the direction that we're going, he said, you know, 50 years ago, if I had walked into a doctor's office and said, I... Um, I feel like a woman trapped in a man's body. 
the doctor would say, okay, that's a problem of the mind. And we need to bring the mind into alignment with the truth of the body. We need to help you there. If I go into a doctor today and say, I feel like a woman trapped in a man's body, he's going to say, that's a, that's a problem with your body. Because the, the, the truth is centered in how you feel about yourself. The truth is what you think about yourself, and we've got to bring your body into alignment with your mind. And Truman does a fabulous job of saying, what's happened? What's happened between these two times in history? There's been a massive shift, and he begins to unpack that in there. But part of what is happening on a very, very simple, simple, simple level is the highly expressive individualism that is more and more coming to define our culture is saying, everything that I feel, I am. And so for you to disagree with anything I feel, for you to say that anything I feel should not be fully expressed to any degree I want to is an attack on my personhood. And then obviously it's highly sexualized. And this is the direction we're going. But the Apostle Paul would say, of course, outside of Christ, that's the, that's the direction human beings go. You're alienated. You're enemies with God. Your thinking is darkened. And your behavior bores out evil because of it. And the two dance back and forth. Let me give you a couple of other pictures of this. One from 1 Corinthians chapter, um, chapter 6. Paul writes to the believers in Corinth, an incredibly gifted church, but a church that came with a lot of baggage. Some of you could say amen to that because you came to faith in Christ at a later age, um, and you understand the depths of his grace and his glory, but you bring a lot of baggage into your relationship with Christ, and Christ is working that out. He says, do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. That's what some in the church in Corinth were before God saved them. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Once you were something else and now you are something new. Once old creation was at work in you and defined you, now you are a new creation. New creation is alive and at work in your life. And don't miss it. He says, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. Who's the active agent here? Who's doing the work, them or God? God. Who's receiving the work in cooperation with the Spirit of God? God or them? Them, yes, God is at work. You can't do this work yourself. You can't clean yourself up. You can't make yourself right before God. It doesn't matter how much you don't cuss. It doesn't matter how nice you dress or how often you attend Sunday school. God has to do this work. But Nate, make no mistake, before it's done, you are outside of Christ. Couple other verses around this, Ephesians 2 13. But now in Christ, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. I love this. It's the picture of our reality outside of Christ that we are far from God. 
And people sometimes say, look, I'm not far from God. I believe in God, right? I go to church every once in a while. That's not what God says in his precious word to us. He says, no, outside of Christ, you are far from me. But in Christ, you've been brought near. Ephesians chapter five. Ephesians chapter five, verse eight. For you once... For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. That's powerful. Paul is not saying you were once in darkness. He's saying you once were darkness. What you thought about was dark. Where you wanted to spend your time was dark. What you wanted to do with your money was dark. It was not of God, but God in his grace and mercy sought you out and saved you, and now you are light, light in the Lord. You once were. And Colossians has the same turn in verse 22. But now, you once were alienated from God, but now he has reconciled you. Again, who's doing the reconciling, you or God? God. Seven of you know. Yes, God is doing the reconciling. God is the active agent. God is the one pursuing you in love and mercy and grace. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death. Christ offering his body in the place of sinful humanity to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Without blemish and free from accusation. Let me give you a little bit more thorough picture of what Paul is getting at here, again from the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. As for you, and remember, Paul is speaking mostly to Christians now who need the gospel again and again and again and again. And some of us are going to get it so much that eventually it's going to dawn on us we were never Christians. And for the first time, we understand We understand the depths of our brokenness and we cry out to God and new life begins. He says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live. They were alive and walking around, but they were dead inside, dead to God, dead spiritually. When you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest we were, now don't miss this, like the rest we were deserving, we were by nature deserving of wrath. We don't believe this except for terrible people, right? If you see a murderer on TV, if you see a a pedophile, if you see a war criminal, you're like, man, that guy's deserving of wrath. We don't believe our family members who we know in the depths of our souls are not followers of Jesus, we don't believe they're deserving of wrath. We don't believe our neighbor, who's a great buddy, we cheer for the same sports team together. He takes care of the house when we're gone. He's a good old boy. He's just not a follower of Christ. We don't believe he's deserving of wrath. Paul says everybody outside of Christ, by nature, is deserving of wrath. But because of God's great love for us, because of his great What? Love, not great desire to judge or just sort of begrudging willingness to save. 
Out of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. John 19, 30, Jesus um, says at the end of his life before he surrenders his life and lays it down on the cross, he says, it is finished. It is finished. And the Greek is clear here. It is accomplished, completed, perfected. What is it? It is the redemption plan and purpose of God. So all that has to happen for you to be received to God in good standing, for God to throw his arms around you and welcome you home and adopt you into his family and love you and lead you and clean you and purify you and give you joy and new life was accomplished by Christ on the cross. Every bit of it. There's nothing you can do. There's nothing you can do. Fleming uh, Rutledge is an esteemed Episcopal preacher, uh, spent several decades of, of parish ministry, what we would call pastoral ministry in New York City. And in a small devotional book uh, written around the seven last words of Jesus on the cross, she writes this. Jesus is announcing that at the precise moment when he seems to be defeated, he is actually the conqueror, Christus Victor. He has done what he came into the world to do. The word became flesh. There is no aspect of Christian faith more difficult for us to believe. It is in the nature of the human being to think that Christ's work could not possibly be finished. That we have to do more. We have to add to it. We have to earn it. Church, you can't earn it. You can't keep it by working good. Rutledge goes on and says, we cannot earn God's gifts of forgiveness, reconciliation, resurrection, and eternal life. These divine gifts are beyond our capacity to earn through any means we could possibly devise. It has already been done for us. It is freely accomplished through the self-giving of Christ. She's exactly right. That's why we worship God. That's why we praise God. That's why we give all glory to God. That's why none of us are going to stand before God when we do and brag. Look, you had me on your team, Lord. You can't imagine how many people I led to you. Peter, look it up. There'll be no bragging because it is all of God. So uh, I told you about Zane's explanation. I tried to redeem myself the next day uh, on the park, at the park with Zeke. Zeke is another one of our twins, and my older son, Cade, and I had taken him down to our little HOA neighborhood park, and he was playing around there, and we were talking. I said, hey, Zeke, today is Good Friday. Are you excited? Yeah, he said. And I said, let me tell you about Good Friday and why we call it Good Friday. Almost 2,000 years ago, a long, long time ago, 
a young Jewish Palestinian, was a revolutionary. He was in his early 30s, and he was leading a revolution like no one had ever seen before. There was no violence. There was no coercion. There was no taking advantage of the poor. But it was a revolution nonetheless. His name was Jesus, and he was moving around a kind of backwater corner of the Roman Empire called Palestine, and he was talking to people about God and calling them to faith and repentance. Now, he's moving around the playground. I'm trying to hobble over to where he is and keep up with him with a torn ACL, but I'm, I'm doing good. And I can talk loud, right? So even when he got to the other side, I just increased my volume. So I said, man, he was welcoming in people that other people didn't like, they didn't want to talk to, and, and he would sit and eat and drink with people that the religious types considered uh, bad people. They didn't want anything to do with them. He would forgive sins, and this really riled up and irritated the religious people around listening and watching. And they said, who are you to forgive sins? Only God forgives sins. And Jesus said, that's right. And he went on about his business. And they couldn't have it, Zeke. It was threatening their power structures. Now, the Roman son, they didn't care that much. He wasn't violent. He didn't have a massive following yet. But the religious authorities went to the Romans because they couldn't do anything on their own and said, we need this guy taken care of. He thinks he's God. And the Romans said, we don't care what he thinks. And they said, no. So, so they began to work together. And finally, the Romans said, you know what? Fine, we'll take care of him. Bring him to us. He had a trial, son. Had to go to court. He showed him up mentally in court, but still was found guilty. So they drug him out to the edge of the city Stay with me, Zeke. Out to the edge of Jerusalem. And with two other criminals, they prepared to have a state execution to kill him, to kill the other two criminals through the cruelest means of execution that the state could come up with, the crucifixion. And I said, the Romans were really good at this. They knew how to do this. So on a Friday so long ago, so long ago this young revolutionary whose lives had been touched by over and over and over and over, was drug outside. He was nailed to a cross alongside two other criminals and left there in agony until he died. Are you with me, Zeke? He's climbing, he's playing, but I know he's with me. And I said it in ways that we can't understand all of the sinfulness and all of the consequences and all of the guilt and the shame and the brokenness that we as broken human beings have brought into the world was placed on him. And he stretched out his arms and he received it. And he experienced the alienation from the Father that we might experience reconciliation with the Father, Zeke. He did what we couldn't do. And he gave up his life for us. An atoning sacrifice for your sin, son, and for mine. That's what makes Good Friday so good. And right at the end of it, he stood up and went, yeah! But I realized he had just gotten to the end of a number of steps he was working on. And that's what he was excited about. Then my 15-year-old son, who was just sitting up there on his phone, said, Dad, you are such a nerd. And he said, you know, I get it and, and I love it. I'm just saying, he doesn't care. But... I thought it was a great impromptu rendering of why Good Friday is so significant. But the point is, you and I haven't done any of this for ourselves. 
You can't. And some of you, you're pushing all your chips in on the fact that you're a pretty good husband or a pretty good wife. Maybe you're prettier and better looking than your neighbors. Maybe you make more money. You've never murdered anybody. You haven't stolen very much. You don't cuss except when it's necessary. Right? It's not going to be enough. Look at verse 23. Verse 23. Paul says we were alienated from God. Then we've been reconciled by God to Christ to be presented as holy without blemish and free from accusation in the 22. Holy without blemish and free from accusation. Without blemish is so powerful. You ever looked into one of those little, those little makeup mirrors and you looked at yourself and thought, I'm not looking too bad. Then you flipped it and that was the magnified side. You're like, oh, I've got serious problems and should probably get to the doctor. Paul says, Christ will present us through his power and his sacrifice, those that are truly in him before God without blemish, holy, and free from accusation. If, verse 23, if you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. Now, Paul is not somehow going back. He's not going back to some kind of works-based faith here at all. What he's saying is that real faith, true faith, those who have gone from alienation to reconciliation will hold fast because they are held by God. Let me give you a couple of verses around this. Philippians 1.6, a verse that will be familiar to some of you. Um, Paul thanks his God for the work that he's doing in the Philippian people. And he says, he has all the confidence in the world that he, meaning God, who began the good work in you, will see it through to completion. God will continue to carry out to its perfected end the work that he's begun in you. The author of Hebrews takes a little bit different run at this with the same conclusion. Chapter 12, verses one and two. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Don't miss the fact that if you're in Christ, you've got a race marked out for you. God has called you to something. If you're part of his church, if you're in Christ, you're part of his church. And God has called us to something. He's marked out a race for us. Then he says this in verse two, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. The author and finisher of your faith. It's all Jesus, church. It's all Jesus. Paul gives a warning. He says, the kind of faith that leads to us being presented as Christ's beautiful bride before God on the day of judgment as pure, blameless, without blemish, without blemish, without accusation is the faith that perseveres until the end. John Stott said this, he, meaning Jesus, asked his first disciples and he has asked every disciple since to give him their thoughtful and total commitment, nothing less will do. This is such a struggle in the Bible Belt. It's so difficult to figure out what's going on, what's real and what's not. Uh, J.D. Greer, uh, in an interview about a book he wrote entitled Stop Asking Jesus to Come into Your Heart, said surveys show that more than 50% of people in the United States have prayed a sinner's prayer and think they're going to heaven because of it even though there is no detectable difference in their lifestyles or values. 
from those outside the church. And now listen to this, don't miss this. This is so astounding and shocking to me, such a great statement. So many people are assured of a salvation they give no evidence of possessing on the basis of a prayer ritual they didn't understand in the first place. Flannery O'Connor, that great a writer and author who comes up with some of the best characters from the South that have ever been written about, said this. She said, while the South is hardly Christ-centered, it is most certainly Christ-haunted. There's, there's a veneer of Christianity that sort of hangs around like residue throughout the South. And it's very dangerous. You know what makes counterfeits so dangerous? Is that a counterfeit is so close to the real thing. But it's not the real thing. It's not the real thing. Jesus gets at this idea in Matthew chapter 7 when he says, speaking of that final day of judgment, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Now, don't miss what Jesus is saying here. He's, he's not saying those who do the will of the Father will get you into heaven. He's saying those who've been saved, those who've had a, a, a right relationship with God restored, do out of affection for him and delight in him and a transformed core, do the will and the work of the Father. So don't mix up what comes first and what comes second. Verse 22, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? In other words, did we not do ministry in your name? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. See, God has an entirely different standard for us. We're like, we don't call people like this evildoers who are doing good things and doing good things in Jesus' name. But Jesus says, I never knew you. We may say, but didn't I pray before family meals and before football games? Didn't I vote against abortion and advocate for prayer in school in your name? Didn't I read Bible stories to my kids and put a painting of Noah's Ark on the wall in their bedroom? Didn't I have tears roll down my face, sincere, genuine tears, every time I heard Lee Greenwood sing God Bless the USA? Didn't I choose to date on Kristen Mingle instead of Match.com? And on and on I could go. And Jesus is going to say, tragically, sadly, unimaginably that day, to many, I never knew you. Because you tried to know me through your effort. You tried to know me through culturally pleasing things that you did. You tried to know me in every way except repenting of your sin before me. Acknowledging that you're actually at war with my Father. You want to be your own God and make your own way. It's not by works, lest anyone should boast. C.S. Lewis in that great little book, The Weight of Glory, said, I believe in Christianity as I believe the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. This is what Christ does when you are in him. He is the lens through which you understand the world. He's the lens through which you understand family and sexuality and marriage, how you handle your money, how you see people of different races, how you see yourself. Finally, John 11, Jesus in response to good Martha, sweet good Martha, who knew Jesus, 
and was so busy working that he would have a pleasing time in her home. He said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Let me ask you this morning. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? The kind of belief Jesus is asking for here is a belief that by the supernatural power of God leads to a transformed life. We just saw it in Colossians. Once you were this, now you are this. If you persevere, if the faith stands, only the faith that stands is a true and right faith. Can I just say this morning, God loves you. He loves you. He is pursuing you, however near or far you are from him. My desire this morning for those of you that know you're not in Christ is that you would understand the sobering consequences of choosing to be at war against God. And you would feel the sweet and tender call of God to come to him. Repent of your sin and cry out to Jesus and be saved. For those of you who've been in here and you've been in Christ for a long time, I hope you would once again understand the beauty and the power of the gospel that we celebrate this resurrection day. And maybe, maybe your affections for God would be fanned some. Let's stand. We prepare to respond to God's word through reflection and response. I pray that you would listen for the small voice of God in your life. And as we uh, participate in communion and worship, that your statement to God would echo his statement to us. That in Christ, all the promises of God are yes and amen. Whatever he's calling you to today, I trust his sweet and good spirit. When he does a work, it is a final work. Let's pray. Thanks so much for joining us online at the Lost Mountain Baptist Church podcast. For more information about service times, giving, and upcoming events, check out our website, lmbc.us.